And yellow full vastness, let's get the book of Habakkuk, please, chapter 2. <clears throat> By the grace of God, we'll be finishing chapter 2 today. Habakkuk chapter 2, and we'll be in verse number 18 to begin with. Habakkuk 2, verse 18. Today we'll be covering the fifth of the five woes that you read about in Habakkuk 2. You might remember what the question is all about. God, how can you let all this iniquity go on without punishing it? And God says, I have a plan. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans and punish the people of Judah. Okay, fine, but God, the Chaldeans are even worse than we are. So how can you use such a wicked people to accomplish your purposes God said, Habakkuk, I have a plan for that too. And now he's pronouncing these judgments against the Chaldeans or the Babylonian people. That's a synonym. And uh, he's telling them these kind of wicked behavior, this type of wicked behavior will not go unpunished. So yes, we are learning something about the history of Chaldea, but we're also learning a very general truth about how God views this type of wickedness. So verse 18, it says, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. So we've already seen uh, passages about oppression, about violence, <clears throat> about uh, killing others. We've seen things about drunkenness and nakedness and how all of this falls under the heading of wicked. Now today we're focusing on idolatry. Verse 19, woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, and to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Now the question here is, what profiteth the graven image? How does this idol help you? Now we have to first take a moment just in verse 18 to look at one particular word. Do you see where it says the maker thereof? You see that? And then at the end of verse 18, that the maker of his work. And then in verse 19, it talks about speaking to this dumb stone, awake, arise, it shall teach. I want to make a distinction between the founder of this idol and the follower of the idol. This passage is going to focus on the founder of, let's call it a pagan religion. And there is a difference. When somebody brings this idol, forms it into whatever shape, and then says, this idol is my God. He now has created a God in his own image. And he is going to put his thoughts, his opinions, his words in the mouth of that idol. Why must, why must that happen? The idol doesn't have any thoughts. The idol doesn't have any opinions and doesn't have any words. Over and over again in the Bible, there's a description of idols where God says, is there any breath in their throats? Can they say anything with their mouth? Can they see anything with their eyes? And he's pointing out that it's dead. As this verse says in verse 18, it's dumb. It cannot speak. So the, whoever founds it, makes it, has to put their thoughts, opinions, and words in the mouth of that idol. Think about what they're doing. They're creating a religion that will allow them to say and do whatever they want. They have technically become their own god. Now that's a little bit different than the follower of an idol. And I'm going to cut that follower a little bit of slack, but not too much. Because sometimes people grow up in a culture where they've always worshipped that God, whichever God it is. That's all they know about spirituality, about uh, gods, about the spiritual realm. So they just, they're 
following what they've always been told. This is what my family's always done. Now, every human being has the responsibility to check into the claims of whatever their religion is, even this one. Right? The Bible says that we're supposed to search the Scriptures daily, isn't that right? To see if something is so. The Bible says in Proverbs, the simple believe every word, but a prudent man looks well to his goings. So when you say, well, this idol or this God says these things, how do we know that these words are true? Why should we follow it? So some people, some followers, they're doing so because, well, that's what we've always done, but there's a, there's a bit of laziness involved in that. They're not willing to check into the claims, everyone else is doing it, I'll do it because this way I won't stick out. Now this happens in pagan religions, pagan cultures, but also within Christian cultures. People grow up in a certain church and this is the church that my grandma went to and my auntie and my uncle, they go to, so I'm just going to do it. And they don't know why they're there. Why follow this church? Why follow Christianity at all? And there's something missing in that person's faith. Now also, there are some people that they, let's call it church shopping. Now I want to be careful here because it, if you move to a new town, I think it is smart to maybe visit a few churches, do your homework, and find a church that's going to feed you the truth of God's Word, right? And we don't expect you to just accidentally stumble upon the perfect church maybe the first time you, you go uh, visiting. So I get it that sometimes you have to hop around a bit until you find a church that, that fits the biblical mold. However, there's another version of church shopping where somebody's really not interested in biblical truth. They want a church that's going to tell them what they already know, what they want to hear, that is going to justify their version of living, their manner of life. And that kind of church shopping, that's tantamount to idolatry. You want to find the idol, the preconceived notion of who God is and what He wants. That's the God I'm going to follow and serve, so let me find a church that offers that God. But what we're dealing with in verse 18 and 19, this, this is the founders of a false religion, of an idol. So when they carve out this idol and put the words and thoughts in the idol's mouth and says, this is what my God teaches and thinks, let's understand that idol now that is being attributed with all these teachings, it's a mixture of two things. Number one, human depravity, and number two, demonic spirits. You see in the Old Testament on several occasions where it says uh, maybe it's the Canaanites or the Moabites, sometimes the Israelites, they bowed down and worshipped an idol, and it says they would sacrifice to devils. So there was a connection between the idol and the spiritual entity that went with it. So when somebody carves out the idol and says, this is what my God teaches, I have no doubt that there is a spiritual aspect to it. There is some spiritual influence there. But it's going to be mixed with that individual's human depravity, what they think God should be like. And this is where all people sometimes ask, where did all these religions in the world come from? That's where it came from. Demonic activity, human depravity, gets mixed up and somebody says, I think I got it all figured out, but everybody knows I'm just a person. I'm just a human being, so they're not going to listen to me. Let me attribute my thoughts and opinions to this God because that, you know, comes with more oomph behind it. There's more authority if I say a God told me this. So then they carve out the idol so people know what to look at. Take your Bibles, hold this in Habakkuk. Let's get Isaiah chapter 44. 
few years back, Boatman and I had the privilege of going to India, and we met a young man there named Abhinash. Do I have the name correct, Boatman? Abhinash. That, that guy's a character. We need to maybe get him over here sometime. I, I, we couldn't spend five minutes around him without laughing our heads off. He was hilarious. He told us a story. After we got back, this happened, but he was riding his bicycle down the road, and the bicycle chain broke. Uh, so, or, or slipped off. He got off the bike and he's fixing it up. And of course, he has greasy hands now. He picks up a rock off the side of the road and wipes the grease on the rock. Well, that leaves, you know, racing stripes, if you will, on the rock. He puts the, you know, just throws the rock down, goes on his business. He comes back down that path a couple of days later. That same rock, somebody found it, picked it up, built an altar for it put the rock in front of the altar and was burning incense to that rock. Somebody evidently thought, wow, you don't see this kind of rock every day, and made that rock their God. Thought, well, this rock's unique. I want to be unique. Here we go. So Abinash did what any good Bible believer should do. He broke down the altar of Baal. Right? <laughs> he broke that down. He threw the rock out. You know what? He went on his way. A few days later, he came back. Somebody had found that rock put it back, built another altar, and put a cage around it to protect it. Now listen, when you have to put a cage around your God to protect him, that should say something, right? Our God doesn't need the protection of my little cage. But it's sad how people can think that this rock, an inanimate object, is going to speak to me, bless me, lead me, teach me. Obviously, the human being that did that is in control of the rock. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, Christ was that rock, right? For us, Jesus Christ, He is the rock. He leads us. He speaks to us. We don't need to put Him up on an altar and, and put a cage around Him. He's, he's going to be the solid rock on which we stand. Look at Isaiah chapter 44. Let's start reading several verses here. Verse 9, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. A delectable thing is something really sweet or nice or pleasant. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. So if you ask this person, tell me about your God. Can he speak to you? No. Can he see what you're doing? No. They are their own witness. In verse 10, who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Who did this? Verse 11, behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. So get all these followers and founders of these false religions. Let them stand together and try to explain why they trust in this made-up version of God. And at the end, their explanations are going to fall flat. They're going to be ashamed. In verse 12, The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. So here is the maker of the God. The God himself has absolutely no strength. And the guy who's making the God, if he doesn't eat and drink enough, he gets weak. That's how puny and pathetic these molten images and false gods are. That's the point he's making here. Verse 13, the carpenter stretcheth out his rule 
He marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. His religion is going nowhere. It's going to remain in the house. Notice he had to fashion it after the figure of a man. He's, he's a copycat. That's what God did in Genesis 1. He formed man of the dust of the ground. He made man in his image. And now man can't improve on that. So he's going to build this idol after the figure of a man. But notice in verse 13 as well, he stretches out his rule. That founder, that maker of the idol, he is determining the boundaries for his God. Do you see that? He's stretching out his rule. This guy's making the rules. He says, my little God, you can only go this high. You can only go this far. Now just stand there. Good God. That's a good God. Stay. Stay. Okay, good God. Good God. He determines the boundaries. You see that? It says he marketh it out with a compass. So you can stretch this far and this far. It's the exact opposite for us. If you think about this now, when we talk about God, what, there's many, many ways I think you might define that term, but let's talk about the functional aspect of God. Just generally, and I don't care what name you put to that, whether you're talking about Allah, Jehovah, uh, Baal, whatever God you want to talk about. When you say, I'm serving God, you're saying, he gets to call the shots. He tells me what to do. That's your God. Now, just by understanding that functional definition of what God is, then we can now look in your life and, and we can determine which God you serve. Is it Jehovah that gets to tell you what to do? Or is it something else? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, or the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. So this guy plants a cypress and an oak. He has to fertilize it. He has to water it. He has to take care of it. He has to keep the insects off of it. All of that, while it grows, he's protecting what will one day become his God. Furthermore, he doesn't even realize it. He's going to take the cypress, the oak, the ash tree. He's going to cut it down and make a god out of it. The God of heaven is sending the rain to grow his God. <laughs> so what the prophet is doing is, is explaining how futile and weak and puny these false gods are. Verse 15, then shall it be for a man to burn. You cut the tree down. What's the first thing you do with it? You're going to use it for firewood. For he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. You can see what the prophet's doing. He says, guys, look, you cut the tree down. You cut it into segments. You build a fire. You keep yourself warm. You bake bread. And then the leftover wood is your god. How How fitting. You took the scraps and made a god out of it. Verse 16, he burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. 
and the residue thereof. You see the scraps. The residue thereof, he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. To the leftovers. Verse 18, they have not known nor understood. So these followers of these idols, they just don't get it. They're not seeing the whole picture. For he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. See, this is God's punishment on them. He's saying you should have seen this clear, obvious truth, but since you want, you don't want clear, obvious truth. You're rejecting what God has said, the revelation of Himself, because you don't like what He said. So you choose to follow another God that you can put the rules in His mouth. You can determine how far He goes. Your strength is imputed to Him. He has no power over you unless you give it to Him. So in verse 19, it says, And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? They're not willing to think this through. Why? Because this little false god is exactly what I want it to be. He stands there in my house and he doesn't say anything to me. He just lets me get on with my life and do what I want to do. No guilt, no shame. Just tells me I'm good. Because it's your own fault that gets put into the mouth of that idol. Verse 20, he feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He, he is self-deceived. You might remember this in the New Testament where Paul would often say, deceive not yourselves, be not deceived. It falls in line with this. Think this through. Think about this God that you profess to serve. Uh, you can continue to hold Habakkuk. Come to Matthew chapter 6. Let's get verse number 24. I think you know the verse. Always helps to see it. You might be familiar also with this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. At the end of that verse, it says, covetousness, which is idolatry. You guys remember that verse? Covetousness, which is idolatry. So when you covet something, you desire that thing, you, you lust after that thing. What you're doing basically with covetousness is saying, God wants in my life, this is what I want. Not your will, but mine be done. So now there's something that's come between you and God. There's something else that is determining where you go, what you do, how you spend your money, how you live your life. Now remember that functional definition of God? If you're serving a God, that God gets to tell you what to do. But how many times something comes between us and the true God, the God of heaven? You say, well, I'll let that other thing tell me what to do. Now Jesus... He's going to focus in on one particular um, thing, let's say, that can sometimes take the place of God. In verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He says, guys, you're going to have to choose, but how many times does something else slip in? It might be mammon. That's another word for wealth. Maybe it's that. Maybe it is the desire for, 
or the possession of. It's either the possession or the pursuit of money that tells you what to do. How many people you think today are going to miss church because, well, I got to make money. I don't have a choice. Yeah, maybe you do. I get it. I I, I know that there are some very exceptional cases. I get it. I do. I, I understand that. I'm not trying to condemn the guiltless. But I also understand, after 25 years of doing this, that 99% of the cases, people are just making excuses. Money comes first. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's the ancestors. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's social media that tells you what is good and what is bad, what is popular, what you should spend your time on, what's trendy. What is it in your life that has taken the place of God? Say, I got other things to do. Shouldn't God be telling you what those things are you should do? How to divvy up your time? Say, I got to make money. People depend on me. I got to pay the bills. Have you never read in Deuteronomy where it says it's God that gives you strength to get that wealth? May I give you a practical illustration here? And and maybe this has happened to some of you, I'm not sure. But if a teacher is in a school, in a classroom setting, and and the headmaster comes, or maybe the school board for that district comes and says, listen, in this school, we're going to teach paganism, we're going to teach evolution, we're going to teach abortion, that, you know, the pro-choice path, and we want you to teach this in your classroom. Now, your conscience may bother you there. The, the Bible certainly would stand up against those things. What does that teacher do? What do you do? I'm not saying that's an easy decision. I'm saying that it does happen. And you have to determine which one am I going to serve now. Because if I, if I just fall in line, I'm going to get the paycheck, and I need the paycheck. I'm not saying you don't. I'm not asking you to do anything rashly or foolishly. I'm asking you to take a look at which... God am I going to serve? And you might have to make that very, very difficult decision. I'm going to have to quit this job because my conscience will not allow me to fall in line with what they're wanting me to do. Now, take that. I've given you one example. Take that and fit it to your career, your, your profession. So I'm making money. Yes, but how many people are you ruining in the process? How, how much has it cost you to have that job? So, Brother Mike, it doesn't cost me anything. I make money. Are you sure? Because maybe you've been missing out on a lot of other things God wants to do in your life. Now, the question at the beginning was what? What doth it profit? Right? What doth it profit? Take your Bible, if you would, look at John chapter 4. Let's talk about that profitableness for a moment. John 4. People say, Brother Mike, you know, I'm... My friends mean a lot to me, and I would do anything to keep these friends in my life. Anything. I don't want to offend them. So if I am not going to be as active in certain activities at church, or if I have to spend less time with the Lord to spend more time with them, I've got to keep these friends. Brother Mike, you don't understand, in our culture, the ancestors, our parents, our family, it's a big deal. And if I do anything to offend them, then I might fall into disfavor in my community, and I can't have that. So I'll compromise a bit on God. Whatever your situation might be, you say, well, 
you know, I'm trying to make the friends happy, the family happy. I'm trying to deal with my finances. And listen, it's working. I've made these compromises. You know, I'll put away some of this spiritual stuff and what God tells me to do. I'll just bend a little here and there. And it's working. I'm making the money. My friends like me. My family is happy. Everything is working out. I'm prospering. Well, are you, are you getting any further with the true riches? Because that money you're making, that popularity you're gaining, that honor that you have, what, what good is it in eternity? Is it getting you closer to God or closer to your goal? There's a difference. Now let me show you John 4, verse number 13. Jesus is speaking to the woman there in Samaria at the well. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. The woman's at the well. Hey, you got to have a drink. We got to have water. Yes, I know. You got to pay the bills. I get it. And she has a bucket and she's getting the water out of the well and it's working. But you're going to be thirsty again. So verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What did she do? By the end of this conversation, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. She left her water pot. She dropped the bucket and runs off and tells everybody, I found the Messiah because she got a drink. The true water, the real stuff. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6. John 6, let's get verse number 32. Jesus is speaking with some Jews here about bread from heaven. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Say, but I've got to have these things. Friends, family, finances, whatever the word is, you want to plug in there. Yes, but is it costing you the true bread? The true riches, the true water. Look at chapter 10. John chapter 10. In verse number 10. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is saying this to people that are alive, right? He's not talking at a graveyard here. He's talking to people that are breathing. I'm come that you might have life. And if I'm standing there and I'm alive, I'm going, wait a minute. What do you mean might have life? I have life. I got a job. I got a family. I pay the bills. I, I have a life. Jesus says, that's not the kind of thing I'm offering you. I know you have that, but you're missing something. This abundant life, this connection with God, that's what I've come to offer you. And no thief can steal that from you. That's the beauty of having a relationship with God. They might kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. This, this cannot, when, once you lay this up in heaven, thief cannot break through and steal. Rust doesn't attack it. Look at, uh, come back to the book of Luke, chapter 12. You might remember over there in Revelation, the church of the Laodiceans, they say to Jesus, we are, in, we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know what they had? The good life. We got everything we need. We got it figured out. Need of nothing. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? Would any of you this morning look up to heaven and go, Jesus, I'm good, I don't need anything? <laughs> really? 
because I've got my life sorted out. By whose standards? See, by, by which God's standards do you have it all sorted out? That, that's where we get these little false gods. We say, well, th- by this little good God that sits in my house and tells me I'm fine, I'm, I've got it all figured out. But wait a minute. Jesus says, and you know not, right? I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. He says, let me show you your true condition. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Now, Folks, if I, let me just wax practical for a moment here. If Jesus walked in the building, stood before you and teached, or taught, sorry, teached. I hope, I hope he teaches English. <laughs> if, he, if he stepped in the building and started to teach this morning, he said, listen, I'd like, I'd like to give you advice. Would you listen? With, with very perked ears, would you not lean in a little bit and go, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to tell me something I need to know. And Jesus then says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Now, he's already given us that advice. I'm just asking this morning, have you even considered what that passage means? It is the trying of your faith. That's the gold tried in a fire. Say, but Brother Mike, that doesn't work for me because I've got this plan for my life and that's how it's going to work. And he says, how about this? You put your faith in the way I told you to do it. Yes, it's going to be... Touch and go for a bit. Man, I, oh, that's not the way I would do it. He says, go ahead and test this. See if this works. Put your faith to the test. And that's something, once you see how God honors his promises, that doesn't get taken away from you. That experience will stick with you. Look at Luke 12, verse number 15. He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, for there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Come on, folks. How many people in the world are searching for that situation? That's the end goal for most people. And whatever God they need to serve that will produce that goal, that's my God. This guy had it all. Building bigger barns. Verse 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool. What's a fool? A fool is somebody who doesn't think things through. You have considered maybe the next 10, 20, 30 years, but you haven't thought this all the way through. You're not going to be here. In a hundred years, you're no longer here. This isn't the final stop for you. Think this all the way through. In pre-marriage counseling, I always make the couples write out a plan for their life. Where are you going to be in one year? Where are you going to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years, 20, 40, 100 years? Every time the couple looks at me and goes, 100? hundred. I'm going to be 130 years old. No, no. I say, no, no, you're not. You're going to be dead. You're going to be, you're not going to be 130. No exercise, no health. You're going to die. And you'll be shocked. At one year, I get a list like this. I, I want this, 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 this for my life. And I'm not condemning that. Help yourself. 20 years, I want this, this, this. 40, 50 years, I want this. Hundred years, almost every time, the answer is like three words, in heaven. (laughs) 
to be with Jesus. Which, great, I, I, that's a good plan, but there's, is that the only thing you're planning on? There's more to eternity than sitting on a cloud with a harp strumming. <laughs> I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. There's more to it. And if you don't make a plan, you're going to get up there and go, Yo, what? I did so, I put all this emphasis on this little span of my time, my existence. I didn't even think that there's this massive span of time called eternity. And I didn't prepare for it. So in verse 20, he said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You've laid up all this treasure. Who's going to get it? I can tell you who's going to get it. Your lawyer, your doctor, and the Antichrist. (laughs) One other guy, SARS, whoever that is. (laughs) Right? They're going to get it. They're going to get it. You said, no, no, I'm going to leave it all to my kids. What do you think they're going to do with it? <laughs> Lawyers, doctors, SARS, that's who's going to get it. Verse 21, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Say, so what does it profit? Take your Bible, come back a couple chapters, Luke 9, verse 25. Make sure that you're serving a God who's going to add something not just to your life but to your eternity. If you are spent, all of us, listen, you got to work. I get it. You got to pay the bills. I'm not, I'm not saying just to ignore that stuff. But don't focus on that so much that you lose sight of what's really important, the true riches. The true riches. Luke 9, verse 25. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What is it costing you? to focus on these temporary issues. What has it cost you? Think think of eternity. Make that long-term plan. When I stand before the Lord, I want to be able to look back at my life and not do it with shame or regret. I want to be able to look back and go, you know what, I had some hard decisions to make and it even cost me some money. It cost me some promotions. It cost me some friends. My family didn't understand, but God, I stood for you. I did what you told me to do. I let you be God. Instead of me telling you what the boundaries were and marking you out with a compass, I let you put the boundaries on me. And God, I'm so glad I did because you know how to run my life so much better than I know how to run my life. And I don't regret one day, I don't regret one time ever obeying you. I get it. In the moment, sometimes it's very tough to say, okay, I'll just do it God's way. But I promise if you go ahead and obey, let that gold get tried in the fire, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. Come back to Habakkuk now, if you would, please. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19. Let me point this out quickly because time is... Time is going here. Verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, and to the dumb stone arise. It shall teach... Now, all through history, people have made up religions, and as I said earlier, they put their own words in the mouth of that idol. But one day, and it may not be long from now, somebody is going to make another idol. You read about it in Revelation chapter 13. So in that chapter, you have the Antichrist. He's called the beast. And then just like Batman and Robin, you have the Antichrist and the false prophet. So the false prophet is the sidekick. 
And he's going to rise up and gather the world together to worship the beast. And he's going to, he's going to make an idol, an image to the beast to commemorate him. No doubt because this Antichrist has just been raised from the dead by the power of the devil. So the false prophet, he forms this image, and then it says he brings it to life. You know what he, he's probably going to say? Arise. Awake. Teach. And the Bible says in Revelation 13, that image is going to begin to speak and teach. You know what it's going to say? It's going to say that if you do not receive the vaccine, I mean the mark, <laughs> then you cannot buy or sell. <laughs> Sorry, I, you watch enough Fox News and that stuff. You, you <laughs> hey, even though that was a very purposeful Freudian slip there, there's some truth behind that. Please understand that we are, I don't think that the vaccine is the mark of the beast, but I, I think we're getting conditioned for it. The world is primed and ready to say, government, we are deathly afraid of whatever you tell us to be afraid of because you are our God. And if you tell us to be scared, we'll be scared. So whatever you have to do, whatever freedoms we have to sacrifice, just tell us. And this isn't the time and the place to get into a conversation on COVID and vaccines, but I'm just trying to point out that we're going that way. As a, as a, as a society, as a world, we're going that way. And this image will say, if you don't take the mark in your head or in your, in your hand, you can't buy or sell. Even now, that pressure is on. If you don't take the vaccine, you lose your job. You won't be able to travel. You see how it's getting ready. It's, it's setting the world up for that. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place. I got a strange sneaking suspicion. There's that idol seated upon a, a throne or upon the Ark of the Covenant there in the temple. And the false prophet says, awake, arise and teach. And that idol stands up. And when Jesus said, when you see that thing, stand in the holy place, run, get out of here. Because that's, he said, that's what Daniel prophesied. Now you're in the end times, and you've got to flee. I don't think we're too, all, too far off from seeing something like this come to pass. I hope you understand this morning. I, 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 know, I don't mean to get off on tangents, but I do think it's worth mentioning, right? Things like the vaccine and COVID. I, I want us to be biblically oriented on this stuff. I want you to see how one thing that's happening in our world today might somehow uh, fit in with biblical prophecy and where, where we're going as a, as a whole. And I don't want you, anybody, please do not think, do not feel conviction if you've taken the vaccine. Okay, are we good there? Don't, don't feel any conviction. There's nothing, you have not done anything wrong. You've not done anything sinful. Everybody's going to have to be fully persuaded in their own mind what they do with that vaccine. I think it's a conversation we need to have maybe some other time. I think it's good to bounce ideas back and forth on that. I think the medical conversation is something we need to have. The political conversation, I don't think there's much to talk about. As soon as you criminalize this and say, it's your choice, but if you don't do it, you can't buy or sell. Wait a minute. You're threatening me? Now they're even going as far as to say, if you don't take the vaccine, you could be charged with attempted murder. Because you knew that could kill someone. Well, no, wait a minute. Any sickness can kill anyone. So we're all going to jail. I mean, that, you can go way too far with that nonsense. Back in the back at chapter 2, let's end on a high note. Look at the end of verse 19. There is no breath at all in the midst of it. 
Verse 20, but. That idol is just a dumb piece of wood, stone, sitting there staring at you. Can't think, say, feel nothing. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You know what Habakkuk does? He, he's now writing this. Of course, God's given him the words. He's taking you out to the millennium, which is why I think verse 19 could very well fit into prophecy. But he takes you out to the millennium where the Lord is in his holy temple and the whole earth now is bowing down to the King of kings and Lord of lords and all these other gods they've been worshiping for centuries and millennia that couldn't say anything to them and direct their lives in any profitable way. They added nothing to their lives. They only took away. That thief came and stole and killed and destroyed. But now the Lord... He shows up in that holy temple and He can speak. He can see. He can hear. He can feel. He can direct your life. It says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. If everybody's keeping silence, I'm just going to assume that the Lord is speaking. It's one of those moments where they say, Shh, calm down. Everybody calm down. Be quiet. The Master's about to speak. You see, the idols can't do that. You see that distinction, verse 20, but the Lord. The idols can't speak, but the Lord has plenty to say. Plenty to say. We don't have to wait for the millennium for Him to start speaking. You remember this verse? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. What does it say? The Lord is in His holy temple. So if He's inside of you, then there's not just a chance. It is a definite thing. It's on the schedule that He wants to speak to you. And today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. The Lord is in His temple. He's inside of you. And He wants to speak to you, guide you. He wants to be your God. Not just by name, but by functionality. He wants you to submit to Him. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's pray and we'll have some fellowship. Father, thank You this morning that You're not a dumb God. You have plenty to say, and we desire to hear from you this morning. Every part of our life, God, we want it to be done your way. You can do a better job of leading us than we can do for ourselves. Father, we acknowledge that the most profitable thing we can do with our life is to be obedient to you. Lord, help all of us to examine our hearts on this issue and make sure that you are the master that we're loving and holding to. and Whatever else might sneak in, And become an idol, Lord. Help us to do what we see there in the Old Testament over and over. They broke down those idols and threw them away. Help us to cleanse our heart for you. Bless our service to come and the fellowship.